today is our second week in the book of Lamentations. Uh, we started this challenging and convicting book together uh, last week, and uh, I think we can agree. We, we found that it is a very painful read because it records a lot of pain. It records the physical, uh, spiritual, and emotional aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 587 uh, B.C. And one of the things that I, I mentioned uh, last week, I'll probably mention this uh, every week that we're in this book and in the series together, is that we, we need this book. We, we need to, to study it to help us wake up from our indifference and apathy towards God and towards the things of God. Uh, we need this book to alert us to the fragile nature of life, to the seriousness of sin, and to our ultimate need for help and God's grace. And so the way I framed this series last week is that in this season together, with the help of Lamentations, um, this is going to be a time for us to get real with God and for God to get real with us. Um, this book is perfect for that, particularly as we prepare our hearts and souls uh, leading up to the season of Advent uh, to Christmas and all that that points us to. Um, now, uh, if you weren't here uh, with us last week, uh, we spent quite a bit of time uh, setting up the book, going through the historical context. We talked about all these settings and, and backgrounds. And um, you know, I don't always say this, uh, even though I, I think it really strongly, but I highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to that one um, online. Go to YouTube, subscribe there, and, and listen to that uh, sermon, because the content there is so important for understanding what is going on in this book. Uh, just in brief summary, if you are new and, and, and didn't listen to it, in brief summary, what we learned is that uh, Jerusalem's destruction uh, was not an ordinary defeat. Uh, it, it wasn't just this normal uh, military que uh, conquest, right? It, it was God's divine discipline of his people for their sin. See, uh, we know that God has made this incredible promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God said that through Abraham that, that there would be this new people, right? That, that he would give this people a new land, that he would be with them, have this personal, intimate relationship with this people, and that through this new people, the nations of the world would be blessed. And then along with that, we know that God warned his people repeatedly. He told them time and time again that if you turn from me, if you turn from my ways, uh, you will forfeit the participation in this promise that I'm giving you, at least for a short time. And so what happens? What happens as we read through the scriptures, the Old Testament specifically? Well, despite all the warnings, God's people turn away, right? God chases after them. He sends prophets to warn them and to call them back, to ask them to turn from their sin, to turn from their idolatry, tells them, stop 
running after the things of the world like the pagan nations and turn back to me. Cling to the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. But again, they refuse to listen. Uh, Over and over again, they refuse to listen. Until finally, God dramatically disciplines them by doing what? We saw this last week. He destroys Jerusalem. He ruins the temple and allows his people to be taken into captivity, into exile. And that's the context of the book of Lamentations. God's people feel this complete severing uh, from God's promises. Uh, It it was a complete loss of identity. Um, All that they had hoped for, longed for in this promise, it, it was gone. There's deep pain There is significant loss. And as the fire and the smoke rise out of the city of Jerusalem, the cry of lamentations also rises. And so it's with that that we now turn to Lamentations chapter 2. And what we're going to see the author focus on in this passage, in this poem, remember this is Uh, five chapters that are five poems. In this poem, the focus is God's sovereignty, that is, his divine will, along with the wrath of God. Uh, It's an incredibly humbling and sobering passage. Uh, You know, I've been seriously following Jesus now. I had to think about it this week. Uh, Time goes fast. But I've been seriously following Jesus now Uh, for about 18 years. Um, I was around 19 years old um, when that happened. And and in that time, uh, there have been some, uh, I'll just say, really difficult moments in my faith. Uh, There have been seasons where uh, it has even felt like God has abandoned me uh, to some extent. Uh, Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is real pain, uh, trauma. There's suffering. And for followers of Jesus who experience this, um, I've heard those seasons described by some pastors, some leaders as, we'll say, the dark side of God's will. The dark side of God's will. It's the moments, these moments when you are in the orbit of, of God's will. Okay, we always are, by the way. But you're in the orbit of his will. But for, an, for a brief moment, a moment, you are in this place in which the, the warmth, the warmth of his promise-keeping grace is eclipsed by difficulty, pain, and confusion. And again, again, it's, it's not that we're actually out of God's hand Something we're actually out of God's presence in those moments. He is still there. But yet, yet, the eclipse creates an environment that feels and even sometimes looks dark and cold and lonely. And it's in those moments, it's in those moments that deep down in the heart of a believer, we we know that one day the, the sun will shine again. The eclipse is temporary. It will pass, but, but oftentimes seeing the sun once again, 
seems like a long way off. We wonder, will I ever actually see his light again? So the question for us today that I believe Lamentations 2 answers is, what do we do in those times and in those seasons that look and feel so dark? How do we view our suffering? How do we respond to pain? Well, how we answer that, it actually really tests what you and I believe about God. And what Lamentations 2 tells us is that when life is painful, when life is confusing, we should anchor our hearts to God's sovereignty. We should look to his holiness and have a proper perspective of his just wrath. And that's what today is all about. So let's open the book now uh, together. If you're not already there, Lamentations chapter 2. And let's consider uh, these truths together. Um, I, again, I really encourage you to have a copy of God's word in front of you, whether physically in the Bible, it's in the seat pocket, probably in front of you, or to get your phone app out because we won't be reading through every single verse, and I'll be ref- but I'll be referring to almost every verse. So you're going to want to look at all of this in context. Okay, so starting in verse 1, this is Lamentations chapter 2, and it begins like this. Okay, simple word, how, <laughs> how. Uh, That should be familiar to you if you're here last week. That word how is the same word that we saw began chapter 1, verse 1. And once again, it is both a question, a a cry of pain, and a statement of deep anguish, of severe struggle. And and, and just as a side note, the way this chapter is structured, uh, again, I told you it's a poem, but it's really beautiful how it's structured. Every first word of every verse is actually the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so we get this poetic structure here that communicates to us that God's judgment is from A to Z, if you will, okay? God's judgment is from A to Z. It's complete and it is total. That's what the author wants us to see. And then the rest of verse one really serves as sort of a thesis. It's a theme for the entire chapter, and it says this. It reads like this. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. So so we see the, the framework of this chapter here. We see here that the Lord, the author wants us to know right from the beginning, God is angry. He is angry. We see that even though the people are, are precious to him, he says. He even calls them, his people, his daughter. Even though that is the case, that he has set them under a cloud, this dark cloud, this cloud of judgment. And what's more, the author says here that the glory of the people has fallen meaning that the blessing of God that was on them, his hand that was on them has now been removed from them. Their light has been extinguished, if you will. They have gone from being blessed to disciplined, okay? And that's really harsh, right? That's a lot to take in, and that's just verse one. And and then, as I said, the rest of the chapter expands on this. It, It paints this relentless 
and troubling picture of God's wrath against the nation of Israel for turning away. Look at how verses 2 and 3 describe what happens. Listen to the verbs here, especially. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. So we, we see vividly here and with a few different images that this judgment is once again severe. That's emphasized again and again throughout this book. But it seems that here specifically in chapter 2, the author wants us to know two things very clearly. First, he wants us to know the extent of this destruction that happened. He wants us to see how bad the destruction was. But also, he wants us to know, and we talked about this last week, but we'll, be going, we'll talk about it much more deeply this week. He wants us to know that God is the one who is behind all of this. God is responsible. Again, we talked about this last week, that Babylon might have been the, the military, the army, the nation that did the attacking. They were the means, if you will. But ultimately, it was God who was orchestrating this judgment against his people. And remember, he, he did this because of their sins, right? That was all last week, their idols, their sins. And then the author just continues to describe God's disciplining work in Jerusalem. Look at verses 6 through 7. It's not on the screen. You'll have to look in your Bible. We see here that the judgment of God, it's so severe that it even extends to the worship of his people. So even the temple and all the worship that is connected to the temple are destroyed. You see what it says there? He has laid in ruins his meeting place. It says, he made Zion, Jerusalem, forget festival and Sabbath. There's no rest. It says, he disowned his sanctuary. He's not attached to it anymore. Not only has his presence left the people, but he has disowned it. <laughs> and it says, he raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. In other words, this place of worship, of honor, of sacrifice, of praise, of feasting, of festivals destroyed. This holy, set-apart place for God and his people that was always meant to be a place where you could experience the joy of the Lord has now been replaced by Israel's enemies celebrating in that very same place. It's horrific. Moreover, we see there that not just is their religion destroyed, their culture is also destroyed as well. We see that in verses 9 through 10. It says there that their leaders were captured, that they have no access to the law anymore, meaning they're just going to be in chaos. Everyone's going to be left for themselves to do as they want to just survive. It says there that the prophets have no word from the Lord. In other words, God has closed his ears to his prophets. And then it says the elders 
or the overseers of the city are silent. There's nothing to say. And they're in mourning. It's devastating. And, and not only that, it says the young women are weeping. Those who are supposed to be in this place of, of joy, right? They're weeping. Translation, again, everything is ruined. Everywhere you look, there is pain and destruction. And what's in the middle of all this? What's in the central, center of all of this pain? Well, I intentionally skipped verses 4 and 5, but now we return there because it's actually central to the chapter. It says twice at the beginning of each verse, verses 4 through 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. See that twice. It's emphasized on purpose. The Lord has become like an enemy. In other words, the wrath of God has turned its face upon Judah and its people, which means nothing but death, destruction, and again, ruin. I said this uh, last week briefly as well, but it's so important to understand that this pain is real in that in this moment that we're reading about here, in this moment, this is how God's people feel. There is real destruction, real pain. They feel heartache. But the key word there is feel. He is like their enemy. Like. They feel like he's their enemy. Right? It's back to the picture of this eclipse that I tried to paint for you in the beginning. It looks dark. It feels dark. And even though they don't see the sun or feel the presence of the sun, the sun is still there. See, the, the people of God are under the just judgment of God. His wrath against their sin is right, and it is being poured out against them. But here is the key. God is still there. And in the end, he is surely not their enemy. They can't see that. It feels like he is, but that's not who he is. You see, this is meant to be a clear message to us. The point of Lamentations is meant to be this warning, this message to us as well. And that is, don't forget, don't forget, remember that God is holy. Yes, he is long-suffering, he's patient, he is merciful, but the city of Jerusalem here is a stark reminder that God will deal harshly even with his own people if they are rebellious against him. Sin is that bad and God is that holy. Remember, these are God's chosen covenantal people. They were people of his promises, people who were experiencing his promises I mean, it's amazing. God even levels his own temple here. It's so hard for me to wrap my mind around. God destroys his own temple, ruined his own holy city, scattered his own people. Why? Why? Well, because as important as Israel was to God, there was something much more important, and that was his own righteousness. Well then, the second movement of the chapter begins. 
And the focus here shifts from the details of the destruction of the city to the deep pain and, and grief that the people are feeling. Jerusalem has seen and experienced God's just wrath for sin, and that has now led to this deep anguish and pain in the heart of the people. Uh, perhaps you're noticing at this point that this chapter is very similar to chapter one. <laughs> very sad, very emotional. And it's meant to make us wake up, but more than make up, it's meant to make us now in chapter two, I believe, move, move. Look at verse 11, it's very personal. It says, my eyes are spent with weeping. Have you ever been so exhausted just because you're crying, like you're to the point of exhaustion? That's here. My stomach churns. Uh, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. So again, we see the depth of the grieving here, and now um, it gets worse because innocent children are brought into this, and they are caught up in this tragedy as well. We see here this picture of these infant children crying out in hunger. They're desperate. And in verse 12, we see that they're actually literally dying in their mother's arms. Again, it's meant to warn us, but also to move us. So all hope seems lost now. And the destruction is not just severe, it's widespread, which is why in verse 13 it says, for your ruin is as vast as the sea. It's expansive. Um, it's deep and wide destruction here. And then we get to verse 14, which shows us that there is, there's actually a spiritual component to all of this. Um, I actually think it's one of the keys to chapter 2 and unlocking it. Because what we learn there is that, interestingly enough, the the spiritual leaders of the city did not, they did not give people the truths of God's word. They were holding back, reluctant to share the truth. They actually avoided dealing with the sins of the people. That's what he's saying. So you see, underneath the destruction of the city was a very significant spiritual problem. It says there in verse 14, it says, your prophets have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. Again, this is so fascinating to me. What this means is that one of the main reasons behind the spiritual slumber of God's people is that the prophets of the city, the teachers, did not, they refused to expose the sin of God's people in order to help them turn back to God and experience his fresh grace. So as I read that this week and studied it, I thought, well, good. That gives me a really good reason to be intense with all of you all the time. Because we need to talk about sin so that we can be healed, so that we can be restored, so that we can have the opportunity to restore our fortunes and to experience his grace once again. Listen, it's always uncomfortable. Always. In fact, I enjoy it when it's really quiet in the space. 
when it goes, you know what I'm talking about, it's like cutting in the room and it gets really quiet. That's a really good thing. I hope we're uncomfortable because it's always necessary. I thought about it in my own life. It's like going to the doctor and going to get a physical. I hate that. I hate going to the doctor. Never want to go, but I always need to go. I'm sick, right? <laughs> we're sick. Um, it's important that we, we talk about sin, right? We should be offended in this room over our sin and what we've done against God. We, again, should be in a place of mourning. There should be discomfort in this space over the gospel. Nothing else. Nothing else should be offensive. Nothing else should be uncomfortable. Just the gospel. And then we are reminded again that this defeat is not ultimately because of the power, the strength, or the strategy of the Babylonians. Even though, interestingly enough, we see in verse 16, they believe so. The Babylonians believe they're strong, they're mighty. Look what we've done. Like, we're celebrating and we're so good, right? And he's like, no, that's not the case. All this happened because of the command of the Lord. We see that in verse 17. Look at it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Again, what did he say? If you turn against me, if you keep going your own way, a nation is going to swoop down against you like an eagle. You won't understand their language, and they will be harsh to you. It was commanded long ago. It's happening here. It's as he purposed. So we, we, we talked about this last week, but it's really strongly reiterated here that a large part, again, of the grief and the pain is the fact that, yes, like people are dying around them. They're, they're homeless, right? God is not intervening, and they need their help. There is no help, but more so, more so the grief, the pain, the struggle here is that God is actually the one who is revealing himself to them that I'm behind this terrible judgment you're experiencing. I did this. It's me coming against you. That's what makes this situation so dark, so painful. And then the poem closes with an appeal to God. Finally, we get the sense of appeal. There's this realization of God's wrath and the deep sorrow they are feeling turns their focus towards the Lord. There's a glimmer of hope here. Remember, these people had been ignoring him, ignoring God, but now he has the people's attention. This is verse 18. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Simply put, the people are desperate. Here they are actually longing for God to hear them and to see them. That's verse 20. Look at that, how verse 20 starts. Look, Lord, look, see us. Right? The pressure of this moment has woken them up. They have realized what they have done. They are now appealing to God directly. But, but the horror of the moment is too much. And so chapter 2 closes with these uh, awful images, horrific, vivid examples of the pain. It's actually the lowest moment, I believe, of chapter 1 and chapter 2. It says this. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? 
the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Um, History tells us things got so bad. Remember, the poorest of the poor in the nation were left. The Babylonians kill all, a lot of the soldiers, men, thousands die. They take everybody else back to Babylon in captivity. But the poorest of the poor are left. And what the author here tells us is that things got so bad that the women um, were turning to, 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 for survival, eating their own children. Um, what was a blessing to them, clearly from the Lord as well, and they knew that. The picture here is that the people were eating of the last of the blessing. What he had provided. That was all that was left. And that's really, really horrific in our culture. But what's equally horrific in that culture is to say that the priests and the prophets were being killed in the sanctuary of the Lord as well. Because what that means is that the blood, the blood of broken, sinful men was being shed in the tabernacle. Only the innocent, spotless lamb could be there and do that. It was so serious, and yet God's holy men, set apart men, priests, were being slaughtered in the sanctuary of the Lord. And so from a cultural and societal standpoint, it cannot get any worse than this. This is it. It seems and feels as if God won't listen anymore, that that he doesn't see them anymore. The nation is finished. The people are now left to themselves, and no one, no one has escaped God's judgment here, not one. So that's chapter two. Uh, We have this complete and and comprehensive uh, A to Z, if you will, A to Z layout of God's wrath, right? And so the question is, taking all this into account, the question for us is, what are we to do with all of this? What are we to take from this? How do we respond to all this pain and suffering? Not just what, how, what they were experiencing, but translate that to today. How do, we, how do we deal with and how do we respond to all the, the pain and the suffering that we face throughout our lives? And there's two things I want us to see today that I think we clearly see from Lamentations 2 to help us through our pain, to help us through our suffering. First of all, first of all, we must anchor our hearts in the sovereignty of God. How do we best respond to pain and suffering as we read the scripture, but also as we experience pain and suffering in our lives? We anchor our hearts in the sovereignty of God. As we read through this passage, we certainly see God's sovereign hand all over the place through the text. It's not hard to see. Even over, he's even sovereign, it's clear, over a foreign, unbelieving, pagan nation like Babylon. And to put it simply, God's sovereignty means that he is all-powerful. It's the simplest terms. But to expand that just a bit, it means that he is able to do anything that falls in line with his 
infinite perfections. He's able to do whatever he wants as long as it falls in line with his infinite perfections. I've said this several times already, but what we see emphatically in Lamentations is that it wasn't actually the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. It was the Lord. We're reminded of that again and again and again, and so you're going to be reminded again and again and again. God used Babylon as a tool to carry out his divine plan. Look how clear that is in this chapter. If you're skimming through the chapter, you'll see things like this. The Lord set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has swallowed them up without mercy. He has broken them down. He has withdrawn himself from them. He has killed. He has poured out his fury and his wrath. He laid the city to ruins. He has laid waste to the nation. He has determined to lay the city in ruins. And he made the enemy, the Babylonians, rejoice. This is hard to hear and it is hard to read, isn't it? Admittedly so, even for me. That, that God does this. He is responsible. But what I want to make really clear today, really clear, is that it's so important for us to realize simple truth but a profound one. We have to realize that God isn't like us. Okay? This is actually a, a common mistake that our world makes, but Actually, that even those of us in the church that we make, that we tend to think that God is a lot like us. We, we tend to believe in our finite minds. Think of God as this, this being who's out there that's basically like us, but he's a little bit bigger. He's mostly like us, but he's a little bit wiser, a little bit smarter. He's a little bit older. Again, basically just like us, just better in most ways, okay? That's how we see God. And so when we read things like Lamentations 2, of God doing the things that he has said to have done, it's almost like we read this and we view it as this better version of ourselves doing these horrific things. We put our humanity in the equation, and in that, I think all these questions, right questions, come about, like, how could God do this? Um, or the big one, how can God be good and still do all of these things, right? You've heard that one a million times. But what we need to know is, again, that if God is just a better, upgraded version of ourselves, then he deserves no honor, deserves no glory, no praise, and he would be unjust to do what he did. And so as we read through Lamentations and the entirety of the Bible, really, it's so important to constantly ask ourselves, what do I believe God is like? You never get too mature in your faith to ask that question. What do I believe God is like? Given my current thoughts about God, given how I'm living my life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? Sunday, how I'm living my life. What does that say about what I believe about God? Because here is what the Bible 
clearly tells us about God. It tells us that he is the eternal God of power, grace, and love. It tells us that he is a measureless mystery whose plans and purposes never fail. It tells us that he is everywhere at all times and he knows all things. It tells us that there is no one and nothing close to being like him. He is incomparable and incomprehensible. It tells us that he created all things and not only that, he holds all things together. It tells us that he is the author of all that is right and good. It tells us that he is just 100% of the time. It tells us that this God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including human history, all the nations of the world, all sin, all pain, all suffering, all people. Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. He's great. <laughs> Psalm 147, again, great is our Lord and abundant in power. Listen, his understanding is beyond measure. Ephesians chapter 3, he is able to do more, far more abundantly than all we ask or all that we could ever think. And I love this one. Daniel chapter 4, verse 45 of our great God. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none, none can stay his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? No one. Listen, whatever he plans, he brings to pass. Whatever he declares, he does. You know, I've heard it said this way. Our God is an unbound ocean, a fountain of supreme wisdom, truth, justice, goodness, grace, mercy, glory, and life all at the same time. He is the sum total of everything that is excellent. He knows and determines the end from the beginning, and yet he himself has no end and has no beginning. There's no one higher, no one greater. And so one of the big questions for us today that we have to wrestle with and wrap our minds and hearts around is, do you know this God? Is this the God you worship? Is this the God that you claim to know, claim to trust? You see, we can rightly handle sorrow, pain, difficulty, darkness, and confusion if this is the God that we see. No matter the heartache, if we believe in this God, if we anchor our hearts in the reality that he is above and over all things, that he is in every circumstance, that he is there in every season, if that's the God we see, there can be peace even in our pain. And then second, second, what do we take from chapter two? How do we navigate through deep pain, deep struggle, deep anguish. Number two, we must have a proper perspective of his wrath. We have to anchor our hearts in his sovereignty, but we must also have a proper perspective of his wrath. 
with a right view and belief in God's absolute sovereignty, we can have this discussion now, okay? We can rightly discuss the wrath of God against sin. We can talk about his just anger. And with this, we, we need to keep in mind once again that he is not like us. Right? I mean, that's one of the main takeaways take from today. God is not like you. He's not like me. And, and, and what that means here in this context is that God doesn't get angry the, th- the way that we think about being angry. That's why we have to go back to the foundations. We have to be careful with associating our anger too closely with his anger. See, with God, there's no like um, random outbursts like you and I. There's no, uh, there's never this moment of like being out of control. Never. His anger, his wrath is this beautiful, actually, just pure, settled opposition against all that is evil, all that is wrong in this world, and all that is wrong in us. And when you put God's sovereignty together with God's wrath, what you end up with is actually this this sovereign destruction, this this sovereign calamity, if you will, this, this sovereign ruin. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening here in chapter two in Jerusalem which is why we see words and phrases here like anger, without mercy, fierce, fury, fire, or the harsh one, without pity. This is describing, it's a picture of God's wrath against sin. And again, we talked about that extensively last week, right? That God punished his people because of his sin, of our sin. And we talked about this as well, that in light of the reality of who God is, that because he is absolutely holy, that he is perfectly sovereign, he must oppose sin. He must hate sin, actually. He must come against sin, attack sin, if you will. And that coming against or that attacking sin, we again refer to as his wrath. And, and I want to say this as well, that it is, it is reasonable of all of us to be uncomfortable with this, okay? And in fact, if you're here today and you're like, God's wrath, woohoo! you know, like, we have to have a meeting, all right? You're meant to be uncomfortable with this notion of the wrath of God. It's intense. But at the same time, think about what it would mean if God wasn't filled with wrath and anger towards sin and evil. What if he looked away from sin, actually? What if he just sort of brushed it all under the rug? What kind of God would he be if he was not a God who was filled with displeasure over sin in our lives and sin in our world? He he would certainly no longer be worthy of worship. He He would no longer be trustworthy, right? And so listen, we cannot, we cannot, just thinking about this, Oh, deeply this week, particularly in light of this chapter. We we cannot be a generation who loses sight of the wrath of God. We can't. We can't. We cannot lose sight of it. Don't 
If you're here, as long as you're here, we're going to talk about sin and the wrath of God. No matter where God calls you next, make sure that you're under the care and teaching of, of people who are going to emphasize your sin and, and, and the wrath of God. Because listen, when we lose the wrath of God, when we lose sight of the wrath of God, we actually lose the, the gravity of the goodness of the good news of the gospel. We, we, we lose the reality that, that God, like a loving father, disciplines us to help us, not, not to ever hurt us. See, oftentimes we, we know God actually allows pain and suffering into our lives to clear the, the clutter of our hearts, to reveal to us what's most important to us, to show us who and what we, we value the most. And again, I know this is difficult. That's why we... We had to talk about God's character and about having a proper perspective first. But listen, God intends to use your pain and your heartache today. He intends it to help you be more like his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't just want to change your circumstances. It's not what he's about. He wants to change your heart amidst your current circumstances. We have to see this. That God's wrath is actually connected to his heart for his people. As hard as that is for us to see, as difficult as that is for us to grasp. So if you're walking through difficulty right now, times are cold, things feel dark, you must know that he has not left you, though it might feel as if he has. See, most of the time, I think there's a maturity um, in our faith when we get come to this place. Most of the time, we actually have no idea what God is doing. I think the most mature believers realize that. <laughs> I remember like, younger in my faith, it's like I'm in, God's, I know exactly what he wants, what he's all the time, and what he's doing. I have this, it all calculated. Now, older in my faith, no idea what he's doing. I know he's bringing me home. <laughs> I know he's got a plan for the church. I know he wants us to be holy and righteous and set apart. We have no idea what he's doing, especially in our suffering, in our pain, in our, in our trials. It's out of our human comprehension. But Lamin's, Lamentations chapter 2 teaches us that God is, again, he is purposeful in his wrath, that he is always at work for our good, and that he is absolutely sovereign over all things. Listen, even in his wrath, he is doing what is just, what is perfect, and what is needed. So listen, listen to me. The next time, the next time you find yourself, and it's not a if, it's when. The next time you find yourself on the dark side of God's will, and it will, it will happen. The next time you're there, maybe you lose, the, you lose a loved one. Uh, maybe you, you lose a job. Uh, maybe you go into this like prolonged season of, of deep depression. Uh, maybe you experience a, a break in an in a extremely significant relationship to you. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a friendship with another family member. The next time you're there, when that eclipse comes, when, when things get dark, don't lose your perspective. Hold on to what is true. Here's what is true today. You are still in his will. You're still in the orbit of his sovereign plan. 
the sun will shine once again. Your pain, your dark period is temporary. The warmth of his promise-keeping grace is just around the corner. It's just around the corner. All you need to do is trust him. Stay faithful. Remain steadfast. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. And trust the sovereign Lord of all. Amen? Let me pray for you.